Welcome to Cornerstone Church of Parker and our Sunday service webcast, which is connecting you to God's Word anywhere over the internet. We're glad you're joining our webcast today and pray that God will minister to you as we share His good news in Christ Jesus. And now, with a message from God's Word, here's our speaker for today. Good morning. Welcome to Cornerstone Church. My name is Mike Jones. I'm the lead pastor here today. Not just today, hopefully every day. (laughs) You ever say something and you listen to it and you go, wait a second, that didn't sound right. That's funny. Well, we do have a water baptism today, but we're going to do that at the very end of our time together uh, today. So that's exciting. Uh, We are in uh, the book of Acts right now in a series that I've titled Unstoppable. And as I mentioned last week, I used a uh, a picture of an avalanche to kind of typify or illustrate uh, the movement of the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts, and not just throughout the book of Acts, but onward uh, through the, all the church's history, and even today, and even through the work that God is doing here at Cornerstone Church. And so in my previous sermon, we looked at uh, God's potent plan and how that potent plan was a little different than uh, what the disciples had in mind, and yet it was, it was better, and they got to be a part of that. Today, we're going to uh, look at God's power in our weakness. Today we're going to see how God fulfilled his promise, the promise he made in Acts chapter 1, in work through ordinary people who weren't filled with pride but were filled with the Holy Spirit. And as a result, they did some really amazing things. So please open your Bible to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And if you need a Bible uh, today, just raise a hand and one of our ushers will bring you one. If you don't have one at home, just keep it as a gift from Cornerstone Church. You can also look it up on the uh, BibleGateway.com. They have an app. It's extremely uh, easy to use, so feel free to find Acts chapter 2, verse 1. While you're turning there, let me say that um, as I thought about this this sermon, I, I know that many Christians undoubtedly struggle with uh, not feeling gifted or talented. I, I know that I've often felt that way about ministry, uh, and yet I've stepped forward and continue to do the best that I can um, f- to fulfill God's call. Uh, you know, have you ever felt that way about something? Maybe something God has asked you to do, and you just feel, man, I just don't, just don't know if I measure up. I, are you sure you want me to do this, Lord? <clears throat> I'm sure that most, if not all of us, have felt that way at one time or another. But through this sermon today, I want to encourage us that God doesn't need those who the world considers super talented or fantastic to get his work done, right? He just needs people that are willing, obedient, and responsive to his Holy Spirit. And on the other side of this, we have people that I know that struggle with pride, perhaps thinking that God needs their talents, as if God's work will pause or stumble or not move forward without them. And, you know, that is uh, not true either. Even though some of us are really, really talented and we bring a lot of value to a team, that's, that's good. Bringing value to our teams or to our ministries is, is really good. But through the sermon this morning, I want to remind you that God is not dependent on any of us. God can and most often does use ordinary, everyday people to do amazing things. And as we read through Acts chapter 2 today, we're going to see how this is true. Let's start with Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. 
Luke is writing here. He says, On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem, and when they heard the noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by all the believers. And so in the very first uh, few verses of Acts chapter 2, we see that God's promise to make the disciples powerful witnesses was starting to be fulfilled. And verse 1 tells us that this occurred on the day of Pentecost. So what is Pentecost and why is it significant? Well, in 2020, Pentecost will fall on May 31st, Sunday, May 31st. And basically, Pentecost comes from the Greek word meaning 50th, and it refers to the 50th day after Passover, or what we call Easter. And so in the Old Testament, the 50th day after Passover was also known as this Feast of Weeks, okay? It was one of uh, the important feasts that the uh, Israelites had uh, in the Old Testament. And so why did God choose this day to launch the church? Well, I think it's significant for two reasons. The first was, or first is, that the Feast of Weeks, or this Pentecost day, this was a time to celebrate the wheat harvest in Israel. It was a time to basically be thankful for all that God provided. It's kind of like our Thanksgiving, which is coming up, okay? And so what we call Thanksgiving, they called Pentecost or this, this Feast of Weeks. And the second, probably more important reason why God chose to, uh, this day to launch the church was it was a time to remember Israel's first encounter with God at Mount Sinai. See, after being delivered from slavery in Egypt, they, in crossing through the Red Sea, God led them to Mount Sinai. It was there that he made a covenant with them. It was there he made an agreement with them. And you can read about that experience in Exodus chapter 19. And when you look through that chapter, when you read through that first encounter that the Israelites had with God, he descended with wind and with fire. And it, the experience was so violent that verse uh, chapter 19, 18 says that the whole mountain shook, right? And the Israelites were terrified. They were terrified. They said, Moses, you talk to us, not God, for we will die, you know? And so they feared for their lives as they made this agreement to serve him and to be his representatives on earth. Well, speaking of fear, you know, I had a cousin uh, who, when he was young, he had an irrational fear of hair. I mean, it was the craziest thing. You know anybody like that? Had an irrational fear of hair. He absolutely hated hair. But after a few years, though, it, it started to grow on him. <laughs> Thank you for humoring me. You know, unlike my cousin's irrational fear of hair, the Israelites' fear of God was not irrational. They had every right to be afraid during their first encounter with God. But the second time the Israelites encountered God, it would be different. In Acts chapter 2, they had another encounter with God. Look back at those verses here as I talk to you through this. The disciples had a second encounter with God, and it also involved wind and fire, but this time the wind and fire didn't settle on a mountain, it settled on them. And the result wasn't fear, 
It was faith. And you can see the, the, at the end of uh, chapter 2 that the results of this encounter with God were devotion, fellowship, miraculous signs and wonders, concern for one another, great joy, and goodwill in the community. It was totally different, right? Same general experience, wind, fire, God coming down, but the result was different. God the Father was making a new covenant with humanity, one based on faith in Jesus Christ, and one that would be shared by people who were empowered by his Holy Spirit. And so as the, the Spirit of God, the presence of God settled on their lives, these uh, disciples, these apostles would be empowered to go forth and share the good news about Jesus. This experience was a partial fulfillment of the promise that Jesus gave in Acts chapter 1. Jesus promised them, hey, go wait, and when you wait, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and you'll begin to witness starting in the city and then in your region, county, and then on to the ends of the world. And we may not realize it or not, but we are still living in a partial fulfillment of Jesus' promise because the ends of the earth still aren't reached, right? And Jesus hasn't returned yet. So the question that, that, I, that came to me was, how does it make us feel? How does it make you feel knowing that Jesus' promise isn't yet fulfilled? You would think that after almost 2,000 years since he ascended back to heaven, like we would get the job done. I mean, that's a really long time, right? It's so, but it's not. It's not done. And we are still part of that. And so does that motivate us or does that uh, intimidate us or overwhelm us thinking about reaching to the ends of the earth? When I stop and think about it personally, I'm not intimidated or overwhelmed by it so long as I don't try to get it all done myself, right? I look at it and I think, okay, what is my role in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth? And right now it involves pastoring this church and pastoring in this community and, and reaching uh, the people that live in Parker and Elizabeth and in Castle Rock. This is where the Lord is placed me, as well as being a light at the school I teach and to my neighbors, right? That's my part, and I bet your part is very similar. You, you help reach the people right around here and then also be a light where you work. And then corporately, we work together to send a few, right, a few who, who feel God's calling them to go to a, another country. Right now here at Cornerstone, we, as we continue to revive our global missions, we have eight global minis, uh, missionaries that we're supporting, and we continue to add more. Uh, if you remember, our, our, at a vision meeting last fall, we introduced how our philosophy here, as far as global mission is concerned, is to support fewer ministries at higher levels so that they do not have to spend all their time itinerating and they can actually stay on the field longer. And so we continue to, the missionaries we support, continue to boost up their, uh, their support over time. And I'm really impressed uh, with Carrie and Brian and the work they're doing with Global Missions and the missionaries that we have. We have some very high-octane uh, missionaries that are helping us as an extension of the, through the money we give and the prayers we pray for them and the projects we partner with them on. They are taking that gospel into people groups that, that you and I, we couldn't reach, right? And so we are part of that. And so Jesus... Uh, he promised his followers that they would receive power to be bold witnesses. And that promise was starting to be filled right here in Acts chapter 2. And they would take that promise, that promise and that, that message that God is uh, making a new covenant. God forgives 
and he, he loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you, they were going to start taking that to the ends of the earth. And we are a part of that even still today. Now, God's primary plan back then and even now is to use unlikely people, people that the world might not choose, right? And he clothes them with power and he moves them into mission. Let's look at this second section here. Let's look at verses 7 through 13. Read that with me. Here it says, They were completely amazed. How can this be? This is the crowd exclaiming, These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here are Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and the province of Asia. Uh, I don't know how to say that one. <laughs> Forgive me. Egypt, in the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. That's all. They're just drunk. You know, the story of Pentecost shows us that God doesn't need a specific type of person to do his work. God can and will use anyone. The disciples were ordinary people who probably didn't have much money or education, but God entered in their presence with fire and with wind, and he ignited a movement that hasn't stopped to this day. And so when the travelers heard people speaking in their languages, they were astounded because the ones who were speaking were from Galilee, and they're like, Galilee? You know, Galileans were considered uh, uneducated and provincial, and still God was using them, so they were perplexed by this. And so as I was reading through this, I thought, so how does this apply to our culture and setting? Well, the answer lies in what people do we consider Galileans? What type of people uh, do we look at and think, how in the world could God use them? They're provincial, or they're this, or they're that. You know, and we look at them and think, wow, that's really surprising. I probably wouldn't have taken that route. But uh, uh, to our bewilderment, the people that we think lack the influential qualities or skills necessary to be a powerful witness, God loves to use. Why? Because he loves to amaze people. He loves to leave people dumbfounded. Uh, the Apostle Paul elaborates on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse eight, verses 18 through 29. Why don't you just flip over there real quick with me? And we're going to read through that because uh, I couldn't say it any better. So we're just going to read through what Paul said. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 29. Paul is writing, Well, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved... Know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of the world look foolish since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those who are called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
The foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. And so here's where this starts to apply to us. He says, remember, dear brothers and sisters, remember, people at Cornerstone Church, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things uh, the world considers foolish in order to shame those who, are th- who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things, and might I add people, despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. Why? Why does God do this? So that no one can ever boast in his presence. So God chose people, people like these Galileans, people like you and I, people who the world might not choose to be on their team, people that they might look at us and, and look, or look at these disciples and go, how in the world could they be powerful witnesses, right? God chooses people like this just to confound them so that no one can ever boast in his presence. You know, the simple fact is that God doesn't need us to do his work. He's fully capable of doing it on our own. But if he doesn't need us to do this work, what does this say about God that he still uses us? And what does this say about our attitude if we want to be participants in his unstoppable movement? I found a quote, and I I really like it. It says that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. It doesn't matter who we are. It matters who he is. It doesn't matter who we are. It matters who he is. And who is he? Well, he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's the Almighty God. He's the God that gives life to the dead and calls those things which are not as though they were. That is the God that lives in us. That is the God that works through us. He is the God that empowers us. And it's the same God who was working through the disciples in Acts 2. And they were unstoppable. No one, nothing could stop them. Not even persecution that came later on. The persecution actually served to spread. Served to spread as a catalyst to spread the the good news all through that region and on to the ends of the earth. And so we see in Acts 2 that God was using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. They were uneducated, untraveled, undistinguished people. But after being baptized with the Holy Spirit, they began speaking in other languages, languages that they had not naturally acquired. It was a miracle. And what were they speaking? Look at verse 11 again. They were speaking the wonderful things God has done. And it caught people so off guard that it says in verse 6 and 12, and then again in 7 and 12, that they were bewildered and amazed. They couldn't believe what was happening. I don't know about you, but I find it refreshing to know that God can and will use anyone to accomplish his will. It should be humbling also, humbling to know that, you know, God doesn't need our gifts, and yet he still chooses to include us in his unstoppable movement. What matters then is our availability, right, and our willingness to obey. And so this this, uh, humble confidence, I would say, rests at the heart of genuine and authentic Christianity. So what about you? How do you apply this, uh, this sermon to your life? That's a good question. I think that it is this, that knowing God gives you humble confidence. Knowing God gives you humble confidence. You know, speaking of humility, someone once said that 
I am so perfect, I only have four flaws. Uh, one, I lack humility. B, I'm inconsistent. And finally, I can't count. Right? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> you know, humility is a hard thing to place because it's one of those things that you can't really brag about having. As soon as you point it out, it evaporates, right? It's gone. As soon as you say, I'm so humble, that, oh, now I guess you're not. <laughs> you know, it's quite as humble as you think. And so what does it mean to be humble? Take a moment. I want you to tell the person next to you. Okay, we're not going to stand up and share. We're just going to, I want you to tell somebody near you. Okay, John, you'll probably have to move. Okay, you'll have to move. All right, but I want you to take a moment and tell the person next to you how you would finish this sentence. A humble person is someone who? A humble person is someone who? Take 30 seconds. Tell them what you think. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. No. So I'll tell you how I would finish that sentence, okay? A humble person is someone who is gentle in how they interact with others, especially those who would be considered lesser than them in some way, whether that would be social status, position, talent, appearance, you name it, okay? Someone who is gentle with those that they interact with. Uh, last year in preaching a, a sermon about responsiveness, I showed you how Humility and gentleness are like two sides of the same coin, two sides of the same response. Humility shows you what I think about myself, but gentleness shows you what I think about you, okay? And so uh, I, that's how I would finish that sentence. A humble person is someone who is gentle. Now let's look at the other side. What does it mean to be confident? Is it a contradiction to say someone can be both humble and confident? Why or why not? So I want you to take 30 to 45 seconds and talk about that with someone next to you. Talk about that right now. What does it mean to be confident? Is it a contradiction to be both humble and confident? Okay. So, contrary to popular thinking, humility and confidence are not mutually exclusive, especially when you know God. See, humility comes as you recognize that your confidence comes from God and not from any personal attribute, right? It comes because God chose you. We had a series through the summer talking about chosen, how God chose you. God, uh, it's like all the people in the world were lined up on the playground wall, right? And he's picking people out, but he's not looking for people who are the most gifted, the most talented, the best looking, live in that particular neighborhood, drive that particular car. He's looking for people who simply express faith in his son, right? In the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, people who are willing to obey, people who are willing to be empowered by his spirit to be a witness. And so he chooses you and it's his choice of you that gives you confidence. I mean, think about the wonderful things that God has chose you to do, not only to be one of his special people, but to be a recipient of his Holy Spirit. That is a very special thing. He's chosen you to be a powerful witness uh, to the world, to be a participant in his unstoppable movement of sharing the good news all the way to the ends of the earth. He wouldn't just choose anybody to accomplish that, but he chose you and I. He chose us, and that is where our confidence comes from. And this is exactly where the disciples' confidence in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 40 came from. After obeying Jesus' directive to go to, into Jerusalem and to wait for the baptism from the Holy Spirit. They received that baptism, and as a result, they were able to stand up and boldly declare the truth to the crowd. And so after hearing 
the crowd after hearing uh, people speaking in other language. They began to ridicule them, even say they were drunk. But in that moment, Peter was quick to correct the crowd's misconceptions. Let's take a look at uh, some of those verses. Let's go to Acts chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk. Right? He continues to move uh, through this sermon. Go up to verse 36. Go to verse 36 with me. He says, so let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. In verse 37, Peter's words, what? Pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Well, several times through these verses, we see Peter's confidence, but it's important to realize that his confidence came from God and was a direct result of the Holy Spirit's influence on his life. So we see his confidence in how he was speaking, but we see his humility and that he wasn't standing up promoting himself, right? Peter wasn't there on a, on a book tour, right? He didn't stand up and tell them about his podcast or this or that, right? He was pointing people to the cross, pointing people to Jesus. Look at verse 38. Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, to those who are far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Notice the progression. I bolded it up here for you. Notice the progression embedded in Peter's reply. Repent and turn to God first. Be water baptized second and then be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even today, this is the, still the message of the Christian church, or at least it should be. It should be the message of our church and the churches in this community. But unfortunately, we do not hear many prominent preachers mention repentance or the importance of water baptism, nor uh, do they rarely give an invitation to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And personally, I think that when Christian leaders and congregations depart from this simple message, they are departing from the message of the early church. Can you say amen? amen. Look at verse 40. Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners. What was he saying? Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And in my notes, I wrote, at the heart of any life-changing ministry is a call to salvation. And any preacher who does not call people to repentance and salvation, in my opinion, is not fulfilling their calling. Notice the results in verse 41. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. And we read later at the end of this chapter that God continued to add to their number daily those who were being saved. You know, guys... I don't know about you, but I want that to be the testimony of Cornerstone Church. I want that to be the testimony of my ministry. Even if I wasn't a pastor, I want it to be said of me, Mike Jones, just a follower of Christ, that I am helping, that we as a congregation are leaning people to Christ. As I've been mentioning, we have some really high quality tools. Uh, here at Cornerstone Church, we've been adding and developing different things. We're in the process of developing our, our app with PushPay. That'll launch here the first Sunday in January. These are all wonderful things, right? But without the moving of the Holy Spirit, without people getting 
water baptized on a frequent basis and without people being saved, what in the world does all that stuff matter? We are here to lead people to Christ. And so our, our message is going to be exactly what Peter's was, calling people to repentance and giving them an opportunity to respond and, and come to a saving knowledge of, of Jesus Christ, to be water baptized, to publicly declare their faith in Jesus, and then in giving them an invitation and an opportunity to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is what we are here for. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's come back to our opening thought. At the beginning of this section, 14 through 40, we talked about humility and confidence and having them at the both, uh, both at the same time. I, I don't think there's anything that quite creates humility and confidence like the cross of Christ. It is the great leveler, right? It is the great leveler uh, in, in society, H- high uh, excuse me, low and high status, unattractive, attractive, you name it, the, the, the extremes that we tend to measure ourselves with. We all come to the same cross. We all come to that same place and need to express faith in the redemptive work of Christ if we are going to have a growing relationship with God. He doesn't come and say, oh, oh what, what do you drive? What neighborhood do you live in? What do you have? What's your title? What do you do for your work? Okay, that sounds good. It's not like that. It's all at the cross, and so it levels us. It creates this humility in us. And as we express faith in Christ, we gain confidence because God chooses us. He makes us a recipient of his spirit and a part of his unstoppable movement. And how many of you are glad for that? How many of you are glad that when you came to that knowledge of Christ, he didn't ask for a resume right? He didn't ask for your resume. He didn't ask to see your degrees. And how many of you are glad now that you can have confidence, okay? Even as the circumstances change in your life, God's calling for your life, his desire to fill you with his spirit and to make you a witness where you live, where you work, here in this community, that doesn't change. Rich, poor, what you drive, kind of clothes you have. None of that changes. How many of you are glad for that? Amen. Amen. I'm glad that he has allowed the people of Cornerstone Church to be a part of his unstoppable movement. And so as I said a few moments ago, we are going to continue doing all that we can in this community uh, to, and in Douglas County, to lead people Uh, to the Lord, to encourage them to be water baptized and filled with the Spirit. And so today, I'm going to actually turn it over to my wife, Jamie, who is hiding here somewhere, I'm sure. They should be coming in. Oh, here she comes. Here she comes. You may not realize it or not, because she doesn't go around talking about this, but Jamie is actually an ordained minister as well. She was ordained like three years before I was even. And so she's very much a pastor and she's our youth pastor right now. And so I'll turn it over to Jamie as we continue with water baptism. We thank you for listening to this Sunday service webcast from Cornerstone Church of Parker in Parker, Colorado. We hope that his truth has enriched your life and inspires you to greater works in God's kingdom. We invite you to worship with us in our Sunday morning service or join in our other ministry events posted on cornerstonechurchofparker.org. Cornerstone Church. 
built on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ and connecting people to God, each other, and to our world.